Hello, and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. Andrea Poli is an environmental artist who works at the intersection of art, science, and technology. Her interdisciplinary research has been presented in a variety of formats, including public art, media installation, community projects, performances, and many more. Often, her works express in some way the scientific data obtained from collaborations directly with scientists and engineers. Her work has been shown, exhibited, and performed worldwide. She's received major support from the National Endowment for the Arts, the National Science Foundation, and Fulbright, among others. Her latest book is Far Field, Digital Culture, Climate Change, and the Poles, published by Intellect Press. And she's currently Professor of Art and Ecology, with appointments in the College of Fine Arts and School of Engineering at the University of New Mexico. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on the podcast, John. So it's, it's exciting. I think it might be the first podcast I've done. Well, great. Uh, well, it, this is my first podcast, too. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, some 42 episodes in, and uh, I, I've, gotten, I've gotten to get pretty used to this thing. So I'm, I'm so happy to have you on. And uh, it's, been a, it's been a little bit of a long time coming. We've corresponded several times. Uh, as I mentioned my, to you, my wife is from Albuquerque, so we, we go there pretty often. But it seemed like every time we were there, it was a, a short time. It's sort of family time, and uh, we weren't able to connect. But I'm, I'm glad that we were able to, to connect now. And so thank you so much for being here. Thank you. So I always like to start with a, a bit of background. And in your case, I think it, it would be interesting to learn how you first started integrating or combining this interest and abilities in art and science and technology. And I, I noted in one of your bios, I saw that you had done some degree work at Art Institute of Chicago, but, but that you also have a PhD in computing, communication, and electronics. <laughs> so, and then uh, I read later, uh, 1999, starting to collaborate with some of these uh, atmospheric scientists, uh, doing some data sonification. So how, how does one embark on this sort of journey uh, of combining all of these uh, abilities and interests? Can you sort of give us a, a, a thumbnail sketch of how you, how you arrived uh, at this place? Well, for me, I think the the center uh, was working with computers. So my father was a computer scientist. And so as a child, you know, I literally was like crawling around with those five and a quarter inch floppy disks <laughs> and, and writing programs, you know, um, seven, eight years old. I mean, there are kids now, you know, writing apps even younger than that. Um, so... I really, I enjoyed math um, and I enjoyed art and drawing and painting. And I found uh, something really powerful in computer programming where you could, where I, I felt that I could you know, almost, almost do anything. Like there was a kind of a tool where you could almost create anything that you could possibly imagine. Um, or, you know, at least I felt that potential was there. Um, so, you know, I went to 
school for, I, I studied art history as an undergraduate. I didn't really know uh, what I wanted to do. And I went to um, graduate school right around the time that chaos theory was coming out. So, um, and there was a Scientific American uh, issue that came out that had fractal images and chaos images, you know, on the cover. And that, that was really cool. And, and me and all my friends were into that. But inside the magazine, there was code. And it was uh, some pretty simple code that you could punch in to, you know, your PC, just a few lines. Um, because that kind of, um, that, that was kind of the revelation of, of chaos theory, right? Is that it was recursive, so you could have, write a program that's just a few lines that makes something really complex and incredible and almost like beautiful as if uh, it's a natural um, phenomenon, you know, like a tree or a flower or something. And so I got really into doing that coding and I started to think about, well, what if, um, you know, if you can make images that look naturalistic, what would happen if you, instead of translating the results, the numerical results into image, what if you translated into sound? So for my MFA work at the Art Institute of Chicago, I did algorithmic music based on the chaotic attraction. And so... You know, at that time, I was pretty much just interested in the aesthetics of it. But about 10 years later, um, I was at an art science conference and I met a meteorologist and he, I, I, we ended up talking about this work with chaos theory. And he said, well, do you know that um, this is a simplified model for air moving through the atmosphere? And I said, well, I, I think so, but, you know, tell me more. And he started telling me about how that uh, those algorithms had become the basis for really, really detailed algorithms to create, um, uh, to do weather mapping, and that you could actually recreate a historic storm in almost exact detail using those algorithms. And so we started collaborating, and that, you know, kind of is what took me on the trajectory of doing a lot of collaboration with scientists and engineers. Hmm. So did you know other people that were doing this sort of uh, data sonification and that's how you got the idea? Or was this something that you just thought of uh, and did independently? I mean, I, I, had, I certainly knew about data sonification. A lot of the data sonification that was being done at that time was using MIDI. So you would take a number and then that would translate to a MIDI node on a sampler. So it was kind of, you know, almost based on, um, uh, on, a, on a keyboard kind of note system. What I really wanted to do was a sonification system that wasn't based on notes or music, but that was more based on the actual sound itself. So there was a, it was actually a really interesting time, sort of the early 90s in computing, in that computers were getting a lot faster and they were able to process a, um, uh, the, a, music, a, a, a sound wave. Mm -hmm. So prior to that, you didn't have computers that were fast enough to really process a sound wave. So it was right at that moment. So I became really interested in, well, what if the data, instead of a number playing a straight note, what if the data was 
like sculpting a sound wave in a certain way. I was, I was inspired by um, wind harmonics. You know, if you go to certain kinds of buildings and there's wind um, blowing, you get these different types of tones because of the way the wind is going through the building. And, right. you know, that's like the principle of a flute or something like that. Right, right. Um, the harmonic series, this, this idea. So I was interested in, you know, what if I took a sound that was really noisy and thick in the frequency spectrum, like electricity or water, and what if I filtered it using the data, and, you know, what what would happen? Hmm. Was was trying. Fascinating. So I'm curious to know who your um, who your influences were in in maybe in those early years or. Or even uh, more recently, who who are the people that you are sort of really blown away by their their work, or has any sort of influence on on your own? Oh gosh, yeah, um, uh, Mark Bain's work. Um, he calls himself a vibration artist. He's based in London, I believe, hmm. and he's done a lot of um, sort of seismic uh, recording. He has a great album that is. Um, the 9-11 and a seismic recording that was taken a few miles away from the Twin Towers and kind of hear the reverberations of the earth. Um, uh, Let me see, um, Christina Kubish's work um, with electromagnetism in real time. Um, Her electric walks are pretty amazing. And then, um, you know, Joyce Hinterding is doing a lot of interesting stuff with radio uh, waves. Um, Honor Harger has some wonderful research uh, related to radio waves. And she, um, uh, so, and the electromagnetic spectrum. She was a um, colleague of mine in the, um, my PhD program, so. Wow. And see these names. I don't know any of these names. Uh, so one of the great things about doing this podcast is is I'm just learning so much and and finding all of these fantastically creative and interesting people. Um, so thank you for sharing some of that. And uh, certainly I'd love to follow up and and I'll try to g- get their names uh, spelled correctly. And I sort of, I'm always sort of jotting down notes and stuff during these uh, sessions. But thank you so much for sharing uh, sharing some of that. Um, I think it might be interesting for us to kind of walk through one of your pieces or maybe one or more of your pieces. The one that Mm -hmm. I had sort of earmarked was a piece called Particle Falls, and that was a more recent one. But uh, I thought it would be nice to kind of walk, if you could sort of walk us through to illustrate how you're combining what you're doing as an artist and and a computer person with the actual scientific uh, data and and technology that you're working with. So is that a good one to sort of illustrate that? Sure, that's really cool, in fact, because I'm going to Raleigh, North Carolina, and uh, we're working with Clean Air Carolina, and we're going to mount Particle Falls in downtown Raleigh. So I'm excited about doing that and definitely thinking about it. So so, uh, that project um let me see there was a there was a public art call um several years ago for the city of san jose and they were calling for a projection a large-scale projection work on a corner um there that was kind of a 
downtown corner, but kind of a forgotten corner. And they wanted to revitalize it. And they also wanted to um, kind of promote that they were starting a light rail system. So I had done some previous projects uh, dealing with air quality. So I was working with um, local EPAs uh, in the US, but also in Taiwan and, and some other places and getting real-time particulate pollution uh, data. And particulate pollution data is um, usually caused by the burning of fossil fuels. And in context, you know, if you're in a city and you've got a particulate pollution monitor on a corner, you know, where a lot of cars are idling, a lot of um, maybe uh, diesel vehicles are idling, you know, you can pretty much determine contextually that particulate an increase in particulate pollution is due to this burning of fossil fuels. So I started thinking about, well, wouldn't it be interesting to be able to show at this corner the particulate pollution that was being created by, by cars and stuff, and maybe you know, it could become like a game and people could try to get rid of the particulate pollution by riding their bikes or, or whatever, some way to emphasize the benefits of the light rail. And when I went to the site, there's the building that they wanted the projection on was kind of this 60 plus foot high building that had a curved wall to the corner. Um, so kind of really modernist and, and no windows or anything, just this kind of curved wall. And to me, you know, you got, you went to this corner, you looked up at this and it was almost like looking up at a, a big cliff or something in a canyon because you know no windows and this curve yeah. and so i thought wow well what if the corner was kind of turned into uh, a natural setting so i imagine this waterfall coming down the the building right at right at that curved corner mm. so i used um particulate generation in in the computer which is a really wonderful way to create explosions and rain and you know things like that so I, I programmed something like that um, to create a computer generated waterfall so um, then I thought then I I had to figure out some way to get real-time particulate pollution most of the EPA data is only um, uh, broadcast like once an hour so I started talking to some of the people who I worked with, some of the scientists who I worked with for some of these other projects, and uh, ended up connecting with Tim Dye at Sonoma Technologies, who's a really wonderful collaborator and, and advocate of the arts. And he uh, connected me with Met One, which is a group that makes meteorological uh, measuring instruments. And they donated a uh, what, something that's called a nephilometer. And at the time, that was a relatively new piece of equipment that measured in real time, measures in real time particulate pollution. It uses a laser and it sort of sucks in a measured quantity of air and then uses that laser and measures the scattering so it can tell just how much quantity of what um, uh, size of uh, particles are in the air. So, so I got that nephilometer, um, 
got one of the students in my lab uh, who's computer science uh, major to take a look at it and figure how, out how to uh, get the data um, into my visualization program. And we did that and then we had this waterfall and then the thought was, well, how do we show particulate pollution? And we started creating kind of these sparkles over the waterfall. And then we discovered if we really um, made those sparkles get larger and more dense with more particulate pollution, it would almost, the waterfall would turn into a fireball. So we created a kind of a range of visuals with that waterfall. And, you know, it was, was and continues to be a kind of a struggle with that, that piece particularly because, well, on the one hand, it is very dramatic to see high levels of particulate pollution when that blue, beautiful blue waterfall turns into a red fireball. Um, on the other hand, you know, we are so kind of trained in this game and real-time interactivity uh, kind of expectation that, you know, we're, we sometimes get concerned that people just want the thing to turn into a fireball. You know, they want there to be yeah. there because it's like entertaining or something. Yeah. And, and, you know, sometimes people would do that. Like one, one thing we would try to show is like, well, you know, do you, do you smoke, you know, light, light up a cigarette and, and blow it towards the instrument and you can see the impacts of that. And, and that actually has been kind of interesting because people will say to me later, like, Oh my God, I knew that I was doing something to my lens, to my lungs by smoking. But when I saw it, I was like, Oh my God. <laughs> you know? yeah. so, so maybe there's something good about that, you know, that dramatic effect, but that was definitely something that we struggled with. So I guess one of the things I'm curious about too is, you know, you mentioned the nephilometer, I think is how you called it. Um, mm -hmm. Like, I mean, I would never even thought to look for such a thing. I mean, how do you, how do you arrive at being so knowledgeable about the different mechanisms for, you know, the, these technological devices? Like, where are you learning about these things? How did you find that particular one in this case, or, or maybe others that you, you know of? Oh, well, this is the exact same process that you're using in your research, right? So prior to that, a couple years before this project um, became a possibility, I had been interested in air quality, and so I had been interviewing air quality scientists. Uh, and okay. interviews, and I and in one of them, uh, a scientist was telling me about how the instrumentation was really advancing and that you had not been able to view, you know, see real-time particulate pollution until, you know, very recently. So I, I had been really fascinated in, with that, so I started asking people about it. Fascinating. I don't know how much you want to get into this, or maybe you, maybe you, you don't. Uh, we didn't really talk about it beforehand, but it's sort of an mm -hmm. elephant in the room is, is our current sort of political situation. Uh, you know, on the news, just it's been in the news now for a little while, but most recently with the latest budget proposal uh, from Trump is that the EPA is being cut down by some 30 percent. 
Um, there's plans on the table to get rid of the National Endowment for the Arts entirely. Uh, significant cuts also to the National Science Foundation. All three of those organizations you mentioned in the last, you know, 15 minutes of our conversation. So, I mean, it's a proverbial sort of elephant in the room these days for, uh, I would think, particularly for people that are working in climate science or, or in yeah. your case, working in, in, you know, sort of, uh, fields that are related to that or, or in the case of these pieces, you know, pieces that are about um, climate information and, and putting the information for, you know, uh, in a way that that is very visible, right, uh, is one way of saying it. So uh, wh where are you at with all of this if you, if you want to go there? Well, you know, it, it's interesting. I mean, it's dramatic in the sense that, you know, totally eliminating these these organizations which some of which have been around for you know over 50 years is is pretty dramatically different but I'll, you know but I'll say that you know even in 2007 when I was in um, Antarctica doing a, a National Science Foundation funded research I was interviewing a lot of scientists and the scientists were talking to me about uh, what they called a war on science and even at that time, there was um, a ban within uh, federal agencies of saying climate change, um, you know, publicly. So, you know, I think there's a lot of influence that the the federal government and government that and, and governments can have um, on science and, and culture and the and you know the arts for sure so i think we're just seeing something that we have seen in the past maybe in a more dramatic kind of a way but we you know it's def we've definitely seen it does it feel different now than it did in 2007 I, you know it, it seems like to me it seems too early to tell really okay it seems seems pretty early um i do i do want to just say that it's it's I find it to be really ironic and really funny because in 2004 it was for me the first time that I really became um, aware in a in a really visceral way of what was happening with climate change. I I, I met with a climate research group at the NASA Goddard Institute uh, with the head of that research group, Cynthia Rosenzweig who's an amazing, incredible person. And she started telling me about the implications of climate change. And, you know, I had interviewed Cynthia and I had known her work. And to hear her speak, you know, us, us as artists, you know, when we speak with sometimes we, and I'm very guilty of this, like sometimes we exaggerate, you know, <laughs> um, and, and you know, I think we hear this a lot in our in our politics right now too. But as artists, you know, as cultural producers, we kind of exaggerate, and we're you know making a point or whatever. The scientists that I work with are so incredibly careful about everything that they say, and in fact, like you know, working with this real time data. Uh, for some of my projects has been um, a real challenge when this is data that I'm getting from a science group because they will say, well, we don't really want you to show the real-time data because we want to have human eyes on it. We want to make sure we're not making a mistake and putting that mistake out to the world, you know? And this would be something that, you know, would happen in a split second, but they really, the scientists, they take their science so seriously 
that even showing something for a split second that's incorrect, you know, is a big deal to them. Yeah. And so he would do things like, uh, you know, have a disclaimer, you know, with an artwork saying this is this this real time data has not been verified yet. And, you know, please look at the science report, you know, that's going to come out a month later or something. You know, all the, all this stuff, like really just so incredibly careful. And in a lot of ways, and maybe, you know, your listeners will think this will, will you know, have this view as well. In a lot of ways, you know, science can be real because it is so precise and because it is so meticulous. It sometimes can be really boring. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? sure. And, and that's where, you know, a lot of like, you know, kind of a, as an artist working with scientists, I really like because I think this, the science is exciting. And I think it's, it's really interesting to try and find those places that will engage people with the science. But I guess the ironic thing that I'm long-windedly kind of getting to here is that, you know, who would have ever thought that meteorologists and climate scientists of all people who are really doing slow, slow, slow data would suddenly become like a lightning rod for political controversy, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, it's just so... It's 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 kind of it's it's topsy turvy like that. But I think for me in in 2007, you know, during during that era, you know, that's when I really started to be surprised about it and try to you know understand what's going on. So so for me, I think what's happening now, it it feels not as shocking, I guess, as yeah. it was for me back well, then. Well, I've uh, I wrote a, a blog post uh, because my m the podcast is also part of a blog that I do. Although I haven't done a whole lot of writing, I think I've only done maybe two or three blog actual blog posts. But the last one that I did was about truth, and mm. um, uh, you know I, I read this fabulous essay that's called uh, by Herbert Howe uh, called "Truth Is a Knife," and he talks about how. And I was introduced to this from one of my percussion teachers in my doctorate, who's a dear dear friend of mine and collaborator, but who who it all sort of comes back around to this relationship with him and how you know percussion lessons were always about something deeper than just the surface thing. And and in this case, I was talking about truth and how you know, how do artists live in this time of, of post-truth and, uh, you know, dealing with this issue is something that I'm interested in, in working on in my own sort of uh, artistic work, uh, because I do a lot of pieces where um, they're, they're sort of aware um, about issues. Uh, for instance, one, one of the pieces that Al and I, the person I'm talking about, Al and Adi, uh, we do together is called The Innocence, which is about a uh, a piece about wrongful incarceration and exoneration through DNA. And this sort of topic just kind of landed in our laps at one point. Uh, we were asked to make this piece and, and then subsequently have um, done it again and again, and it's grown and grown. Anyway, that's a long story that, that I don't need to get into now. But the point is, uh, for you, my question for you is, what what can artists do... Or what, what do you feel are the role of artists in times like this, where it feels to me like a time of crisis? And, and I don't know, maybe I'm being overly dramatic or something, but it, but it feels like a real time of crisis. And I felt like I wanted to respond in some way 
Um, I don't want to be ranting and raving with my pieces, but, you know, I feel like uh, that's not helpful. Uh, but, but to create some conversation, and certainly in my role as an educator, you know, I felt it was important to, I can't just ignore things that are happening, you know. Um, but that, that's sort of how I feel. But I'm curious to know where you're at with, with this time that we're in, and, and do you feel like your work will change or... I mean, you're already working on things like climate change. I mean, highlighting things like climate change and this sort of thing. But um, do you have any response? Wow. Well, that's a, it's a it's a big topic to to tackle. I mean, the first thing I started thinking about when you were talking is this idea of truth and how that is um, how that manifests itself in. Um, computerized data and specifically computerized data that is modeling or recording the environment, uh, right? And I, I think that in the, the science mentality or the, the, the science world, there's a certain kind of culture that has actually um, ended up getting, I think, really distorted in the public media and distorted really quickly, so quickly that scientists couldn't really respond to it or didn't really understand what was happening. And, you know, and, and in the context of climate change. So you had um, a whole scientific community getting starting to get all this data that was indicating that there is this kind of really uh, fast climate change happening. Uh, that hadn't been seen historically ever before and actually was starting to look like, you know, maybe a, a major challenge. And, and, you know, and certainly some scientists I've spoken to have called climate change the largest uh, challenge that mankind will ever face or has ever faced in, in history. And so you've got these scientists like kind of getting this data and trying to interpret it and starting to see some really alarming things. At the same time, there's a lot of debate and a lot of argument and a lot of back and forth about what does all this actually mean. And in fact, like one scientist I interviewed in Antarctica um, illustrated this really well is that he, um, he was doing research in one small part of Antarctica where he was measuring that, that, that part was cooling and he published a paper on it. And it turned out that these, these pundits, um, Ann Coulter and Rush Limbaugh picked up his article and started listing him a list of scientists who did not believe in global warming. And he was like, uh, no, I've, <laughs> I've read the research. I, I think that global warming is happening. I researched a very tiny section of Antarctica and found that it was cooling. And, you know, that's a contribution to us understanding exactly, you know, what these mechanisms are and what's exactly happening. And so he, um, you know, he was at first, he, you know, I guess he was upset about it, but he, he thought, well, these pundits, that's what they do, you know, it's fine. But what really got him is that the mainstream media picked up what the pundits were saying, didn't go back to his original paper, didn't go to him, um, but picked up what the pundits were saying and started putting that out in the, the mainstream news or what he was defining as the mainstream news. I guess Limbaugh and Coulter are maybe not, <laughs> maybe <laughs> now, right? Yeah. But, 
But um, so he ended up publishing an op-ed in the New York Times, you know, explaining his position. And he said that he was really challenged by that because he, um, as a scientist, you know, he didn't want to be seen as a science popularizer. He didn't want to be the, the scientist that's out there, you know, on the news and stuff talking about the science. He wanted to be, you know, that's culturally the respected scientist is the scientist that's, you know, doing the work and, you know, publishing in nature or whatever. But he said that since that experience, he actually started getting involved in some academic programs, trying to create some academic programs for young scientists to learn how to communicate to the media more effectively. So I guess, you know, that, that point about truth is that, you know, there's this truth is something that I think if you look at it from a scientific point of view, it's something that emerges from the research and the debate and the, and the back and forth and the discussion and the arguments and things. It's, it's, um, and that's, that's the process. Like maybe you could say truth is a process. Um, and I think in a non-science community, that's confusing. You know, that's not what, what we expect in the general public. We want to be told, and this is the truth, and, you know, that's what we believe, and um, or the truth is what, what I believe. I think another thing that's going on um, that has to do with computation is that we're becoming so much, um, uh, we're, we're in the echo chamber of our own thoughts and our own interests right now. Yeah. So like when Google first came out, right, um, you would Google something and, you know, the first hit on Google would be like the thing that is, you know, the most popular or whatever, and everybody want to put their meta tags in and be the, the first hit on Google. Well, now on my computer, if I Google something, I'm going to get different results than you're going to get on your computer. Right. Because they've changed that algorithm. But a lot of people don't realize that that's what's happening. And so they think that what they're getting is, you know, uh, a representation of what everyone is seeing and what everyone is thinking, but it, it's, it's not, it's customized. And then, you know, there are reasons for that. It makes things a lot more convenient for me, but at the same time, I think it's, it's giving everybody a skewed and not, and not just Google, obviously Facebook, uh, you know, all those other um, things as well are giving people a skewed, echo chamber experience yeah yeah that's been something that has been a point of discussion here in the the last couple of uh, guests that i've had on uh mm -hmm. you know different varying different fields but it's sort of the same discussion about how we're all sort of in the silo echo chamber whatever uh you know analogy you want to cast on that but uh, i very much see that and 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 acknowledge that um yeah, it's it's a fascinating issue. So I'm curious to to get to the the question that I was thinking of was, you know, do you think that your work will change or is changing or whatever in in this sort of time that we're in? Hmm. Um I you know, I'm not I'm not sure. I mean, I've I've been getting more involved in in bioart um and so I've spent, you know, the past few years, 
you know, trying to grow different kinds of microbes and trying to learn as much as I can about um, biology and biotechnology. And so my work kind of was already changing along that trajectory. And, and I think also over the past few years, there's been, I have found a more um, open uh, climate environment for um, collaborating with advocacy groups and other kinds of groups. Like I, I think the door has been over the past few years more open to, you know, for example, working with Clean Air Carolina, their amazing uh, air quality advocacy group. Um, you know, there's been some other ones that I've worked with as well over the past couple of years, but I think there's been, um, you know, that interest has been there and hopefully now that will even become more prominent or maybe people will feel more um, desire to collaborate. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I hope so. I mean, I think one thing that happened in the National Science Foundation is that the guidelines for grants for scientists became more strict about what kinds of outreach activities were acceptable or desirable. You know, those grants are so competitive and the National Science Foundation started asking for outreach that was really a lot more creative, that was reaching a lot more people. And I found that science, you know, that had never happened before. Scientists were actually knocking on my door you know, versus me kind of going there and knocking on their door, you know, let's, let's do something, but because of the, those requirements. So I think, I wonder about that. I wonder if, um, the National Science Foundation is, gets considerably cut and if they change some of those requirements, how that will impact, um, collaboration. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, I, I don't really know, um, thinking about sort of w what I'm doing. And, and I think the, if I, if I may just say the, one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot lately, both in our, you know, family here and sort of thinking about the world we live in and, and what we're doing. And uh, I've done things that I've never done before, mm. which is, you know, pick up the phone and call my senators and my Congress people uh, I've never, cool. never done that before. I've never written an email to a Congress, you know, to a member of Congress before. Um, but I'm doing all of those things on a weekly basis, <laughs> you know, if not daily basis as, as things come out. And I've talked to so many people who are doing that. So that's one of the ways in which our, uh, just our lives have changed in the last few months. And, uh, you know, the, uh, I'm constantly reading the news and keeping up with what's, what's happening now, what's happening now. You know, so I, I just feel like for this, it just just as for me, uh, that I, I can't help but having my creative work is going to be impacted from that because it's so much of my inner life right now. Does that make sense? Yeah, you know, I hope that artists will uh, that will realize more just what an important impact they can have on. Um, you know, people's thinking and on advocacy and all those kinds of things. I mean, even um, 
with with climate change, you know, a few years after I was working with with Cynthia Rosenzweig, we were on a panel together, and she said, you know, in in a few years, public awareness of climate change had you know completely transformed, and people were a lot more aware of it and and accepting of it, and specifically anthropogenic climate change. And she said she, she thought it was because of grassroots. Um, artists and and grassroots you know independent media that started um putting that um that information you know out there on the table and then the mainstream media you know started picking it up from these independent sources so i think that understanding that power is really important yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I mentioned this this piece that I uh, that I wrote with the innocence with my <clears throat> with my friend Alan. And um, this this piece is uh, you know about this particular issue. And we did a we did a residency at the University of Georgia recently, and we got to sit on a panel discussion with with some lawyers and uh, people from the Innocence Project and even a even an exoneree, someone who had served prison time and was exonerated. And anyway, wow. we got to sit on this panel and, you know, we uh, just in having conversations throughout the, the week long, it was like three day residency uh, with these lawyers and law students and people that work in and around this issue all the time. You know, we told them that our story of how we sort of came on this issue and we were asked to do it. And we didn't really know what we were getting into, and uh, at, at one point we watched some interviews with some exonerees, and it just hit home that this is these are real people. This is a real thing. This this is not just some artistic exercise that we're doing here. And we sort of felt like, oh, gosh, should we really be playing this music and sort of making a piece about this? We should really just be out there volunteering and helping these people, you know. Um, and I, told, I was telling that story to one of the lawyers, and he said, you know, quite frankly, the, the work that you're doing is more important than that because we have, there are plenty of people, law students or, you know, volunteers that will come in and, and write a draft of whatever we need or file these files or, you know, whatever, uh, open these letters or something, you know, do volunteer work. He said, but what they can't do is advocate for our cause. And that's something that you can do. And when, you know, I hadn't thought of it, did indirectly in that way before until he said that. Um, and this was uh, one of the lawyers that was associated with the law school there uh, at the uh, University of Georgia. And I said, wow, well, thank you for saying that and putting that in perspective for me, because now I can now I can think of this piece and what we're doing as being an advocate for this issue, even though that's what we've been doing all along. But, you know, I, I got rid of the feeling of I should really be doing something more, that this actually is the best thing that I could do. Um, sure, sure. And I think there's a, you know, to to be able to do something that can touch someone's emotions is, um, you know, not 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 everyone can do that, you yeah. know, and that's really that can be something that really stays with someone. Yeah. Well, I want to get back to you and your work, and I, I have sort of a, another question for you, which is uh, I'm sort of curious to know how you this this artistic practice and and your your intellectual pursuits and research and all of the variety of things that you were interested in how did you make that into an academic career you know and i'm specifically thinking of what you're doing now at the university of new mexico with this program that's 
art and ecology, which seems fascinating to begin with, but then sort of like, how, how did you get started in an academic career with these, with such diverse um, skills and interests and even degrees? Uh, can you talk a little bit about how you made that into an academic career? Yeah, I mean, I guess um, <laughs> it's funny to think about it that way. And at, at the time, I guess it didn't really feel like as much of a choice. So, you know, I got out of, of my, my MFA and I had these huge loans, you know, $50,000 of loans. That sounds small now compared to what a lot of people have. And, um, you know, so I needed a job. <laughs> At least I, I felt, you know, that I did. I felt that I had a responsibility to, you know, pay back these loans. And I had, um, you know, friends who were getting out of their MFA and stuff. And they were all saying, hey, let's all, you know, I was in Chicago at the time. Um, they said, hey, let's all move to New York or let's all move to L.A. And we're going to be, you know, artists and, you know, we're going to do you're going to make it work and we're going to be real artists. And and for me, I didn't feel like I had that choice. I said I need to get a job. And, uh, you know, I had some teaching experience from being a T.A. And I had um, my parents. Uh, my mom was a teacher. Uh, so I had, you know, I felt like I had some natural aptitude and I knew computers and the web was just coming out. It was 1994. And so I was teaching graphic design, um, at the equivalent of a community college and the community college has had one computer, which was in the library that was connected to the web. And I started spending like all my time outside of teaching my classes at that computer, learning HTML, um, you know, that had also just come out and, you know, making some web pages and, and or emailing peep some people and stuff. I had done some email a few years earlier because I had been at some big universities that had um, access to that. And so then, because I ended up knowing, you know, for, at first people were like, why are you spending all your time on this computer? You know, what's wrong with you? But then, um, you know, I became really in demand that to teach these classes that taught people how to make web pages and write HTML. So then I started creating um, web design and web programming um, curriculum for different institutions. I went to a couple different institutions. Um, ended up teaching in a media um, art program in New York. So I ended up getting to New York finally <laughs> and um, trying to be an artist, you know, at the same time uh -huh. I was teaching stuff. And, uh, and maybe before I get into the art and ecology thing, I will say something interesting that I discovered about um, being a teaching at college and being a university teacher is that, you know, part of your job description is to be a working artist. So I really took, um, or working professional. So I really took that to heart and really took as much opportunity as I could to do, do my art and pr pursue my artistic practice while I was teaching. And, you know, it turns out that you know, when you're with young people and you're all together learning new things, that's really inspiring. Yeah. You know? yeah. So that's 
great place to be as as an artist um, in inspiring for your work and you know it helps you to find collaborators and all those kinds of things yeah so um so then you know there was this great optimism about the web and how it's this great equalizer and i guess in a lot of ways it is but you know there was a kind of a uh, another layer to that that had a lot to do with, um, you know, the digital divide in terms of what uh, software, the expense of software, the expense of um, hardware, whether or not you have access to learning, how to use those tools, all those things, you know, all the way to, well, where are those materials coming from that are in your computer or your cell phone when they come from a mine that's being guarded by child soldiers, you know, in third world countries in a lot of cases. So there's, a, you know, there's really just a lot of bad stuff when you are dealing with technology. And I love technology, uh, you know, don't get me wrong. I really, you know, I always find it really fascinating to work with technology, but I always had this kind of underpinning of my feelings about that. And so when an opportunity came to join a new program called Art and Ecology, where really addressing those issues could be at the forefront of what we're doing, you know, as much as possible, or at least that's, you know, kind of the foundation, you know, I just said that, you know, this is right, this is right for me. Yeah, wow. So, so how did you learn about the program at UNM? Was this something you kept your eyes open for jobs? Or how did you get involved there? Yeah, and you know, the same year I was on sabbatical um, from Hunter College where I taught in New York when I went to Antarctica. So I spent a semester there, I took a year sabbatical, and I spent a semester in Antarctica, and then I got um, a fellowship at UC Boulder. Mm -hmm. And so I was there for a semester, and I just kind of fell in love with the Southwest. So then I started looking for positions in the Southwest and this one in New Mexico. Uh, came available. Wow. Great. Well, that's, that's quite a story. That's fantastic. Fantastic. Um, well, it's certainly very interesting to uh, speak with you. And, and I just want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. We're, we're getting up on our time here. I do have our last question. How does one live and sustain a creative life? <laughs> Well, I think we, you know, it's a great question. Um, I think, you know, I touched on that a little bit with with teaching. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, for me, I've always had my steady gig, uh, so to speak, out, out of school, um, has, has been teaching. So I think, you know, if you're talking about living and sustaining a creative life in terms of, you know, how do you pay the bills? that that's what I've done. And then I've been able to supplement that, you know, but really I tell my, cause I teach a grant uh, writing class. I, you know, I tell my students, if I have a great year in grant writing and, and commissions and things, you know, I'll, I'll still only make like a third of what I make teaching. So, you know, really as a, as a solid foundation, that's, um, that's been for me, but I think you, you know, there's a bigger question there in what you're asking, which is like, how do you live? And that is for me, I think kind of the ongoing challenge. I think it, what it, it is to me, I think it's really important to live 
authentically or live your your values. Um, and I found that was a, kind of another reason why I think I wanted to move out to New Mexico is I found that living in a big city, um, high density city like New York, there's a lot of pressure on the choices that you make. It, and, and here I'm talking specifically about sustainable choices in you know, where your food is coming from, where your energy is coming from, those other kinds of resources. Like, you know, when you're living in a big high-rise apartment building, you don't really have those choices. I mean, you might be not using as much because you are sharing um, resources and utilities with, you know, some of the other people, but there's a lot of other choices that you can't really make. So that was one of the reasons why I chose to move out to New Mexico is to kind of have more control over, you know, I want to eat local produce, you know, that's been farmed sustainably and um, ethically and, you know, those, those kinds of things. So, so yeah, so just, I mean, that's, that's the, con that's a constant struggle. That's a constant kind of, Re rethinking it, you know, every New Year's or something like looking at it and say, well, how how have I slipped, and you know, where where, where can I cut me, you know, cut my energy consumption or you know, those kinds of things. Yeah. But just um, yeah, we can also kind of demonstrate different ways of of living. So if we can really make those conscious choices and show those to other people as as possible or alternatives i think that's really important great okay uh thank you <laughs> thank you so much no that's a terrific answer and it really that question grows out of uh, a larger discussion that uh has been going on with um this artist named sharon loudon i don't know if you know her work at all but she actually wrote a book called living and sustaining a creative life and it was like 30 i think 30 different essays from artists who answered that question and so I had Sharon on my podcast, was one of my early guests, and uh, sort of adopted her question to then pass on down the line to all different sort of artists. And so it's an ongoing uh, conversation that that's sort of having, and her whole idea is, yeah, that it's not just about, uh, th that a lot of people say, okay, this question is about how do you pay the bills as being an artist, but no, that's not really what it's about. It's about exactly what you addressed, how, how every artist is, uh, approaches their life and, and how they do that in a way so that they, they can sustain their creative energies and, and practices. And, and that's really what the question is about. So I think your, your answer was perfect. I mean, we got a sense of how, how you live your creative life, and that's really what, what, what that one is all about. So thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it, and I hope that uh, one of these trips out to Albuquerque will get, to get together and have coffee or chat or something at some point. Cool. All right. Well, thanks a lot, John. Okay, thank you. And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter, at ThatJohnLane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john-lane.com, and follow the show on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music. You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening. <laughs>